We're in week two of a series that we're calling Religious Lies. And what we're attempting to do is we're trying to uncover the religious lies that you have been taught, you've held on to, you've thought were true, and that are not. So we're trying to uncover them. And we're trying to replace them with what Jesus actually taught. Uh, turn to your neighbor and say, uh, you believe some lies. I'm going to talk to you today about a lie that you probably have believed, and, and this is the power of the lie, without even knowing it. Okay? So I want to invite you to stand with me. We're going to look at uh, everyone's favorite book in the Bible, the book of Leviticus. <laughs> Those of you who tried to read through the Bible, you know this is where you fall asleep. So uh, I'm going to explain this. This is a... a, a um, uh, you'll see as we get into this. <laughs> I'll just read it for you, okay? Leviticus chapter 16. Aaron, who was the brother of Moses, who was the first priest of the people of Israel. Aaron is to offer the bull for his own sin. That's an actual bull, not a... Yeah, for his own sin offering to make atonement for himself and his household. Then he is to take the two goats and present them before the Lord at the entrance to the tent of meeting. This was uh, before there was a, a temple, there was a tent. He is to cast lots for the two goats, one lot for the Lord and the other for, uh, the Hebrew word there is, I'll explain it in a minute, the azazel or what we call the scapegoat. Aaron shall bring the goat whose lot falls to the Lord and sacrifice it for a sin offering. But the goat chosen by lot as the scapegoat shall be presented alive before the Lord to be used for making atonement by sending it into the wilderness as a scapegoat. Heard the word scapegoat? This is where it comes from. Moving forward to... uh, Verse 20, when Aaron had finished, has finished making atonement for the most holy place, the tent of meeting and the altar, all parts and rooms in that tent, he shall bring forward the live goat. He is to lay both hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the wickedness and rebellion of the Israelites, all their sins, and put them on the goat's head. He shall send the goat away into the wilderness in the care of someone appointed for the task. The goat will carry on itself all their sins to a remote place. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you so much for standing. Got an uncomfortable question to ask you. Uh, This is a question we don't really like to think about, but it's a question we all have to wrestle with. And the question is this, how do you deal with your sin and failure? How do you do that? Now, this is a basic question, whether or not you agree with the category of sin or not. Um, This is a basic question because the reality is that failure and sin exist in our world and really are the cause uh, and the ruin of our experience of being a human being. Let's just make sure we define what we're talking about. Sin, uh, sin is when you choose what's wrong or when you give in to what's wrong. You've done that, so have I. Failure is when you drop the ball or when you mess up. You've done that. So have I. Uh, Very honestly, if you're a leader uh, and you have responsibility for other people, uh, what you're trying to do as a leader for the company you work for or the organization you work for is is all you're doing as as a leader is you're just trying to keep the failures and sins of the people that work for you from messing up the mission of the organization, Right? Uh, If you're a parent, 
All you are really doing is you're trying to keep your kids' failures and sins from messing up their future. Isn't that kind of what's happening? Uh, I, I would even argue that if you read a book on leadership or you read a book on parenting, all those books are telling you are how to minimize the failure and sin of the people that you're trying to lead. If there was not failure and there was not sin in the world, we wouldn't need books to tell us what to do when that happens. When everything goes wrong, we wouldn't need someone telling it telling us what to do. Now, if you work somewhere and you have a policy manual that gets handed to you, do you know why there is a policy manual that exists in any organ? Do you know why that is? Some Yahoo somewhere screwed something up and they said, that can't ever happen again. We're putting that in the policy manual. The, The policy manual that you are handed is there because somebody failed and somebody Sin. So this is, this is actually a really, really important question. What do you do, you, with your failure and sin? I'm not asking you if you sin or fail. I'm, I'm, I'm just admitting for us, this is when. When you do this, when you sin, when you fail, what, what in the world do you do? What are you going to do? What's your, what's your current go-to strategy? Um, do you ignore I, 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 didn't, I didn't do that. That, w- that wasn't me. <laughs> uh, do you blame somebody else? That was their fault. Do you play the shame game where you say things like, I'm so stupid, I always screw everything up? What's your go-to strategy? Which, which of those do you pick? Now, if it's somebody else's failure and somebody else's sin, what do you do? Do you help them? Do you punish them? Uh, what is it that you do? If you're, uh, 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 let's drill down on this for a second. If you're, if you're a parent, what's, what's, when your kids fail and sin, what's the best practice on how to deal with that as a parent? How, how, do, you, how do you go about doing it? What, what do you do? Uh, I, I'm not, I'm not this, is a, this is a parental reality because your kids are going to fail, and they're going to sin. It's not an if, it's a, it's a when. Now, if you're mad that your kids screw up, just point the finger at yourself because you gave birth to them, right? It's kind of your fault. I, I love how my wife, when we notice one of the uh, worst traits in our children coming out, will turn and just look at me and say, these are your children. <laughs> right, <laughs> guilty. If you're a parent, I mean, if you're a parent, what... What's going to be the best case strategy for dealing with your kids' failure and sin? I'm not not talking about what will make you feel best, because if you could give them time out until they graduate from high school, that probably would work, right? I feel great. I'm saying for them. Is it best to make them pay for what they did? Is it that you ignore them and, and give them the silent treatment to let them know that they've offended you? Is that... Is that the best strategy? Is that how you do it? Do you shame them for not doing it right and try to condemn them into a different kind of behavior? Or do you help them be better? Now, this applies uh, to leaders. Anybody who's a leader, a boss, of any sort, manager, uh, anybody who has to lead a crew, uh, if someone messes something up, what do you do? Do you, do you punish them for doing it wrong? Or are you going to coach them into their potential? 
Now, how, in the Bible, if you were to turn to the Bible and you were to say, how does the Bible suggest that we should deal with failure and sin? The Bible just stares this straight in the face, uh, doesn't even blink. Uh, one of the most famous passages is the uh, passage that the Apostle Paul wrote in Romans chapter 7. If you're familiar with this, I'm going to put this on the screen for you. Uh, this is what Paul says. Maybe you can resonate with this. I resonate with this. He says uh, about failure and sin, I do not understand what I do. For I want to do what I want to do, I do not do, but what I hate, I do. Can anybody relate? Okay, just, okay, thank you for the honesty. And if I do what I do not want to do, I agree that the law, the, the Old Testament, that what God said is right and wrong, is good. As it is, it is no longer I myself who do it, but it is sin living in me. For I know that, uh, that good itself does not dwell in me, that is in my sinful nature, or you could translate that my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out does that resonate for I do not do the good I want to do but the evil I do not want to do this I keep on doing not my proudest moment uh this last week last Sunday was Easter and on Saturday my wife went to Maryland's bakery and she got uh she thought was a pie I don't know how she mistook a pie for their chocolate cake but she did she got a chocolate cake and not the, not the big one, but the little one, okay, right? And uh, I don't know if you've ever been there. I'm not trying to give a commercial. It might be the best chocolate cake I've ever eaten, and I've eaten a lot of chocolate cake, okay? So uh, she put it, she said, she's on Easter, after services, you know, all that, she's like, hey, I got, I got a pie. Now, if you've ever been there, and I have a sweet tooth, you're like, oh my gosh, a pie. And so I went and got it out of the, and it was, it was, the, it was, it was like the heavens opened, and... <laughs> A beam of light shone upon the cake. Oh, you know, I'm like, oh, this is the greatest day in the world. And so I, t- I said to myself, you know, because I, I try to watch what I eat. I don't always do a great job. I, like, I'm going to not eat this entire cake this week. I'm not going to do it. It's not going to be me. It's not, this is not going to be my week. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be great. And I could quote, though, what happened with the Apostle Paul. I do not understand what I do, the celery, and I really like celery. I'm not telling you I don't I hate celery. It's not. I actually like peanut butter. You know, put some great raisins on it. It's delicious. The celery I want to eat, I do not eat. But the cake I do not want to eat, I eat, and I ate the entire thing this last week. I confess it to you. I I, I have sinned greatly, right? But we can all resonate with that, can't we? We've all been there. Like, I wanted to do this, but I didn't. And I didn't want to do that, and I did. This is is another way to ask the same question. And if you're keeping notes, this is the blanks we'll fill in. How do you deal with problems you don't know how to solve? If you're single and you don't make friends well, if you're married and you just can't seem to make it work, if the person that you work with irritates you and you wish you could make that relationship work but you just can't all of us who are honest admit that we have problems we don't know how to deal with and and i i would suggest to you that there are two main ways that we try to deal with the problems the failures and the sins that we just don't know what to do. I, I just would suggest these are the two kind of human strategies that we indulge to make ourselves feel better and the first one is um is that we we blame ourselves we, i blame me I 
Uh, there must be something wrong with me. I must be defective. I always choose the wrong thing. I, w- I was reading an article this week about the Titanic, and it was just kind of going through uh, you know, all the things that happened when the Titanic sank, and it had all these pictures from, uh, from the Titanic, all the, you know, when, when it was leaving out of the port, and how people thought it was unsinkable, and had pictures of all these people. And one of the pictures that came up was the operator who climbed up the, the crow's nest and could have seen the iceberg, but didn't. For whatever reason, didn't take the binoculars that he could see it. And uh, he said, he, he survived, he said, you know, if only I had seen it, if only I had paid more attention, we would have never run into that iceberg. We'd have plenty of time to turn. And he's, the, the, the historians say that he struggled with depression for the rest of his life. He blamed himself. It's my fault. His failure and sin, it's my fault. I, me, I did it. Blame me. That's, the, that's, that's one strategy. The second strategy is maybe more common, I, I don't know, uh, is instead of blaming me, I blame you. See, you're safe, and, and when I blame you, and I put the blame for what I've done onto you, then that means I'm not responsible now. You are. And what that does is it allows me to put down the weight and the guilt and the, and the shame and the frustration for what I have done and put that onto you. And so I feel a lot better when I blame you. And I really think that the reason that we blame is so that we can feel right about ourselves. Whether we blame ourselves, okay, at least it's my responsibility, or I blame you, okay, it's your responsibility. Now, we're talking about religious lies. So what's the religious lie about failure and about sin? Because I would argue that religion often makes this problem worse, not better. How how does that happen? Um, one, of my, one of my favorite psalms, I've been, I, I pray through the psalms in the morning. That's kind of how I connect with God to start the day. And um, one of my favorite psalms is, is uh, Psalm uh, chapter 24. And Psalm 24, we're going to put it on the screen, uh, says this wonderful thing about the kind of people that we could become or be. And, and this is what, uh, what it says. It says, who is it that may ascend the hill of the Lord? In other words, who can be where God is? And then it lays out this, this case and says, well, who may stand in his holy place? The one who has clean hands. You know, the, in other words, the person who does the right things. And the one who has a pure heart. Their motives have been, they've weighed, sifted through all of the reasons they do, the, reason, the, the things that they do, and, and they've decided it's for a pure motive. And who does not trust in an idol or swear by a false guard. So it's, it's this ideal, right, that you and I could be where God is. And, and how do you get there? Well, you have clean hands. You do the right things, and you have a pure heart, and you have the right motives, and you don't trust in idols. And so you have confidence in the right place. Now, is there anything wrong with that? Isn't that kind of a beautiful picture of what you could be as a human being? I mean, don't you, don't you want to have a neighbor who has clean hands and a pure heart? That, I mean, or you work with somebody, you can trust that they're going to do the right thing and they're going to do it for the right reason. And man, it'd be awesome if they even did it out of love for God. I mean, don't, don't, you, don't we want people like that in the world? Wouldn't the, wouldn't the world be better if that's kind of how people were? I mean, wouldn't it be easy if I could just say today, hey, okay, we're done, message is over, everybody stand for the benediction, I'm going to give you this blessing, I want you to leave today, I want you to make sure you keep your hands clean, I want, to make, I want you to make sure you keep your heart right, and I want you to do it all for the love of God, amen, you are dismissed. 
And if we just could go out of here and we could just all do that, then the world would be a better place, wouldn't it? I mean, right? Now, here's the problem. And this is how religion makes it worse. Worse is because the human heart, your heart, my heart, we hear this message and we rarely get it right. And what are we going to do? We're going to go out of here and you're going to hear what I said and, and, and you're going to attribute, well, he's a, he's a pastor and so he, he, I got to do what he says because that's what God says. And so you're going to try really hard this week to have clean hands and you're going to try really hard to make your heart pure. It's not going to work out really great for you. You're going to have some success and have some failure. And, but this is the problem. Here's where, here's, where, here's where everything gets messed up by religion. Then what you're going to do is you're going to compare yourself and your efforts to the efforts of the people around you and you'll judge them. And you'll judge them in the name of your attempt to get closer to God. Now, do you see why this, is, this lie hides from us? Because you're like, I'm, tr- I'm trying to do what God wants. I'm trying to get closer to God. And so that, that's the religious lie. If I can get close to God while blaming other people for my problems. Now, what this creates when you believe this religious lie is a Pharisee or a Sadducee. Uh, those, are, those are religious titles of people in the New Testament. They were the Jewish religious leaders. They were two theological sects, and they, sects, S-E-C-T-S. Um, and they, they had different belief systems slightly about what would happen. And, and they were the, they're set up in the Gospels as the enemies of Jesus. We're going to come back to Matthew 23 next week and talk about hypocrisy. Uh, but they represent what you always get when you attempt to be close to God while also comparing yourself to other people. It's what you always get. And so there have always been and always will be Pharisees. Now, now listen, again, we want people who are hardworking and they're honest. It's just that when you attach religion to that, they just don't know how to stop judging. And they're the ones who end up giving religion a bad name. If you've ever been hurt by somebody in the church, a, a, a leader, you need to understand, just give them, give them a break for a second because what they did is they believed this religious lie. They believed they were doing the right thing and ground you up in the process. Now, in Matthew 23, if you were here last week on Easter Sunday, is a, a sustained critique by Jesus of religion. This is exactly what Jesus is critiquing. He's critiquing a religious system that at- attempts to get close to God while comparing ourselves to other people and then blaming them. And, and the result is that you will always call someone else unrighteous so that you can be righteous. Because what you'll do is you'll say, well, but my hands are clean-er than yours. My heart is pure Er than yours. Now, I don't, I don't trust in idols. I mean, at least in the same way you do. And we will always blame somebody else so that we can feel right about ourselves. The, the religious lie is what is in Leviticus chapter 16. It's always make sure you've got a scapegoat. What's, what's happening in Leviticus chapter uh, 16? Leviticus uh, is um, uh, Genesis... Um, 
the first five books are known as the Torah or the Pentateuch, uh, the different names for that. The, the core teaching that Moses handed down to the Israelites that was contained in the, the Old Testament, what we know as the Old Testament. And, and Leviticus is the heart of the Torah because it's about how to be right with God in that religious system. And Leviticus 16 that we read from is the heart of Leviticus. So this is the heart of the heart of the Old Testament. This is, this is the whole thing. And it's a description about God gives to the Israelite people about how to deal with their unsolvable problems, with their failure and sin that just keeps coming up again and again and again. And it, it is famously, Jewish people still practice this, uh, it describes what, what is known as the Day of Atonement or Yom Kippur. Uh, Kippur is the translation of the, the Hebrew word for atonement. And, and it, Leviticus 16, if you go all the way to the end, the last verse, uh, it gives all these prescriptions that we read that you're like, what in the world is he talking about there? And this is, what, this is the point, because this is what the human heart wants. In Leviticus 16, 39, on this day you will be clean from all of your sins. Now, isn't this what the human heart aches for? I mean, don't, to not be blamed anymore? To not feel guilty to no longer feel the weight of what it is that we've done. Now, so, so it's a question. What's the day? What, on what day will you have solved your unsolvable problems? On what day will you finally always do what you want and not do what you don't want? And Leviticus says, well, here, here's the day. Here's the day once a year we're going to set aside. And on this day, you can wipe out the last year. And it's kind of gory. Uh, it, it, it's about offerings, and there's a bull and two goats, and, and Aaron, the priest, would go in, and he would sacrifice the bull and the goat and the blood, and um, that was very uh, common in that day to be, have, a, have a bloody sacrificial system. And, and, but then there was this second goat, this, this second goat that will be used for making atonement by sending it into the wilderness as a scapegoat, Leviticus 16, 8 says. The, the word scapegoat there is uh, azazel. And, and so Moses would, or Aaron would kill the bull and the goat and he would sprinkle the blood. And then, and then he would take that goat and then he would confess over that live goat that was left and he would confess over it all the wickedness and rebellion of the Israelites. All their sins and put them on the goat's head. And then the goat will carry on itself all their sins to a solitary place. Now you go, this is so primitive. This is so barbaric. I just want to suggest that this is the pattern that is as old as humanity. We are always trying to lay our sins on someone else so we don't have to feel bad about ourselves. So we blame somebody else so we can feel right about ourselves. We scapegoat all the time. We do this politically Whatever I think, the other people are the problem. We do this emotionally in our homes. Well, we wouldn't have this problem if you didn't. We do it on the job. Uh, you know what? If that guy would just show up on time. And what we do when we scapegoat is we confess over that person all of our wickedness, all of our rebellion, all of it, and we put it on that person's 
head, and we name that person the enemy. Now, what they would do, uh, what historians say when this practice, because it's still Yom Kippur still happens today in a, in a modified form, is when the goat would leave, it became a practice where people would kind of form this kind of human tunnel, and the goat would leave with a person who would, was assigned to take the goat out away from the people. And, and they, would, uh, they would hit the goat, and they would spit on the goat, and they would pull the goat's fur. And, and, and this, is, this is what we do. Because did you know that the word Azazel, some people say, means a demon? That's why we demonize people that we don't agree with. They're the problem. Those Republicans. Those Democrats. My mom. And the religious lie makes it okay for us to do that because we, see, we, we think we're doing the name of God. And so if you're a Christian, then you look at someone who's part of Islam and they're the problem. Or an atheist or someone who's not a believer. And, and I, growing up, we had a whole list of people because I grew up in the church when it was just a much more pharisaical legalistic kind of environment we had a whole list of people and things you couldn't do that were the were, they were the bad you know like we scapegoated them all the time and 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 the and the 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 trick the the irony the thing that catches us is that we do all of it in the name of getting close to god we believe we're becoming holier and ascending the hill while we're blaming someone else for all of our problems and we're blind to it so blame whenever you blame listen whenever you blame someone whether it's yourself or someone else that's a sign that you are scapegoating. Now, how do you break free from this cycle? Because this is not what Jesus came to teach. It's not, it's not at all. I want to give you three ways that Jesus breaks us free from the cycle. And we're going to go forward in the, the uh, New Testament to the book of Hebrews. The book of Hebrews is all about the sacrificial system of the Old Testament and points out how Jesus fulfills it and supersedes it and says we no longer need it that way. It's a great book, one of my favorite books in the New Testament. So I'm going to give you three things from the book of Hebrews about how Jesus is greater than this whole system of sacrifices and how Jesus actually does make an atonement for us. Now, maybe that word is unfamiliar. Just, it's actually a, an English word that's put together that means at-one-ment. We're splintered and we're in parts and we're fragmented and all these things have happened to us and we just feel all disintegrated on the inside. But God is able through Jesus Christ, what he did on the cross for you and his resurrection power, to put you at one again. So that you're whole. That's, that's the meaning of the word. It's a human need. We want to be whole. So here's how Jesus does it. First thing, Jesus pays the cost himself. The writer of Hebrews looks at the Old Testament sacrificial system and he says this in Hebrews 10:4, those sacrifices are an annual reminder of our sins. And then he says this, it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. In other words, it's an endless cycle. Every year the same thing. Here we are again. <laughs> I did it again. Same song, second verse, a little bit louder, a little bit worse. It's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Listen, it is also impossible by blaming people to actually feel like you are right and okay. 
It's an endless cycle that you will never get rid of, an endless cycle of scapegoating. So then he goes on, Hebrews 10.10. But we have made, been made holy. What is it? What, what does it say? Through what? Through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Jesus becomes the scapegoat. Do you know what happened when Jesus was carrying the cross to Golgotha, the hill where they crucified him? Do you know what people were doing in that human tunnel that he's walking down carrying a cross on his back? They spit on him. They kicked him. He was the scapegoat. Yeah, it's his fault. And, and you, you can't stop putting your sins on someone else right now um, until you realize that Jesus is the scapegoat for you. And then you can, fi- you can finally go, you know what? It's not my mom's fault that I'm this way. I don't have to project onto my mom all of my failures for my entire life. I know she wasn't a perfect person, but I don't have to keep doing that anymore. Jesus is, my, Jesus is the scapegoat. It's not your dad's fault. It's not your boss's fault. It's not that teacher's fault. You don't need to scapegoat anyone now because Jesus is the scapegoat. You don't, now, now you don't actually have to have any enemies. You can say, we all sit at the table of brotherhood and sisterhood, and, and you don't have to fear any group of people anymore. They don't have to be the enemy anymore. And you don't have to do that in the name of your religion. Well, I'm a Christian. That means I hate those people. So Jesus pays the cost himself. Second thing is Jesus offers himself as the gift. This is how he, the writer of Hebrews says, um, he, Jesus has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to what? Do away with sin by the sacrifice of himself. Just as man is designed to die once and after that to face the judgment, so Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many people. Jesus signs up for the, uh, Jesus signs up and says, I'll go. I'll, I'll go make the payment. And, and you don't need a gift now to appease God. God paid the price himself on your behalf. You, you don't have to, so you know what that means? You don't have to make anyone pay anymore. See, what happens when you play the blame game is you, you try to make someone else pay. And you don't let them forget it. And you, Maybe it's subtle and it's underneath the table, but man, you don't let them forget it. They owe me. They are going to pay for what they have done. And, and you can now put down the list of hurts that you are accumulating against the people in your life who are doing you wrong. Why? Because Jesus has paid for it himself. Third thing. Uh, Jesus finishes what we could barely start. This is how the writer of Hebrews says it. Day after day, every priest stands and performs his religious duties. So that priest had to do that in Leviticus 16 every year. Again and again, he offers the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when this priest, Jesus is the priest, had offered for all time one sacrifices for sins, he sat down. Did you see the difference? The, the one priest, he stands because the work is never finished. But what does Jesus do after he's done the work, right? What does he do? He sits down at the right hand of God. And since that time, he waits for his enemies to be made his footstool. For by one sacrifice, one, not over and over, one on the cross, he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. 
Theologians say that what Jesus did on the cross, they call it the, the finished work of Christ on the cross. Maybe you've heard someone use that phrase and said, what does that mean? Well, it's a contrast between our always unfinished, unresolved, unending work of trying to make up for our failures and sins by blaming ourselves or somebody else over and over and again, trying to get rid of the shame and the guilt. Over and it's never finished, it's never done. If I could make my heart cleaner, if I could make my hands pure, if I could, if I could ascend the hill, then God would accept me. And, and on the cross, it is the finished work of Christ. It is done once for all. See, religion is, I will go up the hill and I'll do all the things that God says that I'm to do. And when I finally get up to the hill, God will accept me. And what Jesus says is totally different. Do, do you know, Good Friday, Jesus was crucified between two thieves. And one of the thieves turns to Jesus and says, Lord, uh, remember me today when you come into your kingdom. That, that thief rightfully was paying for his crime. He, he didn't have the chance to ascend the hill. He's going to die in just a few minutes. He couldn't make his heart clean. He couldn't make his hands pure. He couldn't, he couldn't do any of that. He didn't have a chance to be religious. And do you know what Jesus says? Because he finishes the work on the cross. Today. Today. You'll be with me in paradise. And, and then do you know, and we're going to end right here. What Jesus says when he gives up his spirit. Do you know this, his last words? And they're so weighted down with meaning. And they're meant to end the cycle of blaming somebody else for my sins. It's endlessly scapegoating in the name of God. Three words. It is finished. Let's pray. To have our scapegoating exposed feels so vulnerable, Lord. To become aware that we've used our religion to alienate and hurt other people so that we can feel okay is pretty overwhelming. Uh, we don't want to have any part of that anymore. We want to be free of making lists of what people have done to hurt us. We want to be free of blaming and judgment. We want to be free of the endless cycle of trying to make up for our sins and failures, our unsolvable problems. And so Jesus, today, we receive into our heart, our mind, our soul, your finished work on the cross. That once for all, you have made a sacrifice for sin. You have done away with the problem of our failures and sins. And 
every time we struggle, we look to you. We go, oh, thank you. Thank you that I don't have to ascend the hill to be right. We want that. And it's, it, for some of us, it's so foreign. Because we're so used to the scapegoat. And so we want to give it up. We want to think differently about our lives based on what you came to do and what you came to teach, Jesus. We want to uh, have everything that you say we can have. A heart free from this. A heart free from blame and scapegoating and judgment. All in the name of God. So do the, do the surgery on our hearts, Holy Spirit, that only you can do. Take out the heart of stone and put into us a heart of flesh, a heart of love, a heart of grace. We need that. Thank you that it's a gift, that it's the free gift that you gave us from the cross. And thank you, Jesus, on this side of Easter, that we can remember again that we are uh, resurrection people that you you take us out of the graves we've dug for ourselves you make us alive so we say thank you for that we pray this in your name and all God's people said amen I'll invite you to stand with me if you would leave you with a blessing you're sent now to love God who bore the pain of your sin and mine You're sent to love people who are meant to be loved, not blamed. And you're sent now to serve the world in Jesus' name. Hug somebody, tell them you love them. See you next week.